0: We're going to share with you what they don't teach you in business school. Welcome to the show. Welcome to today's episode of Cascading Leadership. I am your friendly neighborhood talent strategy nerd, Dr. Jim. And today we have another episode in our Innovators and Disruptors series series and in this episode we're going to learn a lot of great stuff we're going to learn what is the most important thing to consider as a founder of a startup we're going to learn why building lifelong relationships is critical to startup success and we're also going to learn how the us isn't as safe as we think it is and the person that's going to guide us through this journey we have is the founder of quema ali jabri and before we get to ali I want to call a couple of things out. So for those of you who are on YouTube or whatever platform that you might be seeing this on, perhaps it's TikTok, you might notice that I'm not in my normal getup. Usually I'm in a button-down shirt and a blazer. Today I'm not. I am drinking a Red Bull, wearing my Red Bull New York jersey, and that's by design because I just took inventory recently of how many clips I have of excerpts from the podcast where I am drinking a Red Bull while while the guest is speaking, and it's a lot. And I'm looking at, hey, Red Bull, you have a phenomenal opportunity to get some sponsorship on this show. We have sponsor spots open. So I figured I'd throw that out there and, and see what happens. So with all of those shenanigans out of the way, Ali, awesome to have you on the show. It's a
1: pleasure. Thanks for having me.
0: Yeah, I know that we're going to cover a lot of ground. And before we dive into that conversation, I think I think a good place for us to get grounded is for you to get the listeners and viewers to the show up to speed on who you are, what you're involved w- with, what CREMA actually does.
1: Sure thing. Yeah, my name is Ali Jabri. I'm Kenyan Saudi. I grew up living in like five different continents, mainly the Middle East and Africa. I spent about a good 10 years in Latin America and now I live in the US. I've been a tech founder for about 11 years now and always had a passion for solving problems like growing up in two completely different worlds like the Middle East where there's a lot of my abundance of pretty much all that you could think of then going to Kenya and there is a really strict line of poverty and seeing that and being seeing both sides of the coin every year really like blew made my mind indirectly fall in love with solving world problems right not even noticing it you know? so when i moved to latin america it was a really different experience and that's where the segue into how quem was founded came to life i had other co-founders at the time and somebody that we had in our network was kidnapped unfortunately on the way from the airport to her house and on her way home, she had asked her before she went in the cab. She asked her mom to wait for her at home with cab money, and her mom never saw her. So, she was like, what happened? Something's wrong. My daughter doesn't have money to pay for the cab. I started asking around. It became viral, and in about thirty hours later, because of the virality, the kidnappers got scared and let her go. And that was wow. What if we could replicate this by creating some magic button? And that's how me and my ex-co-founders at the time, came up with the idea. But here I am, I'm the one that stuck around till today. And it's been an insane journey of learning about safety and security. I've lived all over Latin America, I've lived all over the US. I was in Alaska, then I was in St. Louis, and that's where I am right now in Missouri, and I was in California, Miami, Mexico City, Rio. So I got to talk to a lot of people about their safety. And it shocked my mind to see how dangerous environments can be for people. And that's where QEMA evolved from being... A piece of accessory that anybody wears, like jewelry, has a hidden panic button. When you press it, it, not- it notifies your security, de- like your friends and family, that you're in danger. And then within that journey, we evolved to what we have today, which is a badge reel that everybody wears. We actually have a pen and we're pending in 50 other countries. So everybody already wears this. So it's very easy to add a seamless layer of safety. So when you press it with your name tag, it automatically would sync with your, sec- your security team, like your corporate security team or your emergency management team or 911 if you're like a remote worker or like an on-the-ground salesperson. And we're getting a lot of traction within different industries in the U.S. And yeah, that's a nutshell what, I'm not sure what does in a brief control about me.
0: I'm impressed that you just got all of that content out in a couple of minutes. So that's, a, that's pretty amazing. But I think what really took me aback in what you described is how the seed of innovation started from a really terrifying crisis event. And we're going to touch on the roots of all of that stuff a little bit later, but I want to call that out right now. One of the interesting things about the rest of the in- your background that you shared with us is the number of places that you've lived throughout your life. You're Kenyan, Saudi, you have an immigrant background, and then you've lived all over the world. So when you look at that global experience and that global life experience, how did that impact you? I
1: think what it did is really made me put zero boundaries on people's ethnicity culture and always want to be part of those specific cultures. So growing up, my classroom was like the UN, like I had people from all over the world. And from a young age, having that kind of exposure and then having the guts to travel when you're like 19 to a completely different continent where you don't speak the language is pretty much not common, right? So I think the fact that I was bold enough to take these little jumps or immersion opportunities and knowing that's gonna be so risky and so hard, I might fail drastically. That made me want to solve problems. Like they're my own, even though there might not be a hundred percent my own, if that makes sense. And it really invested in my North star, right? I love investing in cultures. I love being as local as possible everywhere I go. I love understanding what the problems are. I love helping people whether it's through conversation, whether it's through action. It's just the way that my like my thread is designed.
0: That's some pretty solid input and insight. It actually got me thinking so you have a pretty diverse immigrant background, and generally, I don't want to paint with a broad brush, but there's a fairly solid stream of any immigrant community where children of immigrants are told you need to stay within your own community and don't venture too much out, out out of your community. And here you are as a 19 year old traveling all (laughs) over the world. And you continue to do that. Did you catch any flack from your relatives? I definitely
1: didn't face like any flack from my parents, but I did or my family, but I like got questions like, are you crazy? Why are you going to Chile? What is there? Like what was in Chile? Like my sisters went to the U S like, why don't you go to the U.S.? And, oh, actually, you know what? I want to go to Chile. It sounds exciting. Maybe I was also young and naive on something a bit more exotic or crazy or fun or unique. But it was probably the best decision I ever made. Like, it, it made me become a critical thinker, somebody who takes risk, is has is very comfortable with the unknown, right? I was living in the unknown since I was a young age, the age of 19 in Chile in a place where 2% of the population spoke English. So these are all things that made me a dime in the rough, but definitely was like, What? Really? So definitely got a lot of those, but never got, oh, you should not do that. So it was, I've been like privileged to have like great support from my parents.
0: So were your parents fairly cosmopolitan and travel around a lot too?
1: My parents were definitely open-minded and traveled a lot. And at the very least knew a lot about culture and were very well educated when it comes to cultural differences and also knowing how things work. My, My dad and mom at a young age traveled to a lot of different parts of Europe and the U.S. and they both have very positive personalities. So that's what helped me be the person I am today.
0: So you you head off to Chile when you were 19. What did how did that Chilean experience shape sort of the rest of your journey into adulthood?
1: Yeah, what's funny is that I one of the this is a s- stupid of me, but funny. When I was young, the reason I wanted to go to Chile is because I wanted to conquer a mountain without having a support system, like without having anybody there, right? So like, I was thinking if I go to the U.S., I'll have my uncles there, I'll have some other family members there who would actually pave the path for me and make it easy, right? And as much as that was attractive, I still felt, what if I go to Chile and like, I'm the man, right? That sounds exciting. That sounds like a challenge I want to take. And I was thinking of it like more, I'm going to go and learn Spanish. I'm going to go and build a life of my own there. And when I got there, I realized that I was unique, like very unique in Chile. This is 2008. There was no like, very little foreigners, let alone, like, dark-skinned or people of color. So everybody saw me. I was, like, shocked that, hey, like, that's a black guy. Wow. Like, it was so interesting. It was a curiosity that was obviously not racist, but just a curiosity that was existent. And for me, because I already grew up speaking English, Arabic, and Swahili, like, picking up Spanish was a bit easier because I had all the pronunciations on lock, and I just had to practice. So here I am, 19-year-old Ali, like, taking classes, like learning, watching shows, like going out, meeting people, trying to converse with really bad Spanish. And six months later-ish, like I was already speaking very manageable Spanish and then started having more confidence because I was like, wow, I'm speaking four languages now. And started reaching out to people for like work while I was studying and ended up getting so many meetings because people were just curious to meet me, even though they didn't have a job for me or didn't even have anything to offer me. They're just like, hey, sorry, we don't have any, op- any positions open right now, but I'd love to allow you coffee. Do you want to meet up and love to learn, meet a Kenyan and Chile, like a background is so interesting. So that gave me confidence to realize that, hey, maybe I don't have to like be so transactional about what I need. Maybe I should just reach out and be like, hey, we'd love to meet and talk. So that kind of segued me into being very I don't say picky, but very diligent about what I wanted to embark, and it ended up making me ju- jump from jobs like every three to four months because I got a better offer, and I just was like, "It's a better offer." Sounds like a more exciting op- opportunity going after. It. Like I was never satisfied almost, and that's what led the segue path into what brought my eyes and my life to what the startup world was. I didn't even know what the word startup was till about 2011, and that was thanks to Startup Chile, which was a federal government program that brings about 60 entrepreneurs from across the world to fund their startups with forty or $50,000 and they have to spend six months in Chile. And I applied to that and got in. And I remember I was at work when I got it. And I just got up and I was like, yeah, and I was doing like a sales job. So I jumped out of my seat. I was like, yeah. I'm like, oh, you closed the deal? I was like, actually, no, I'm just celebrating for something else. And then resignation later, a week later, and the rest is history.
0: The one thing that I've been grinning about since you mentioned it is when you're young and thinking about, oh, I'm going to do something different. Like I totally connected with your whole idea of there's the path that my predecessors have paved for me. And I could take that path where I could go do something different. Now, when most people think about, I'm going to do something different than what my parents did, they think about a different profession. Oh, my parents are lawyers, so I'm going to be a doctor or I'm going to be a teacher or something like that. You, on the other hand, Oh, everybody else has done their own thing and paved their way. And I could certainly follow their footsteps and do that, but I'm going to make it really difficult on myself and just go to another country and see if I can go there with no support structure. Everybody has their, has their idea of adventure. I guess yours is a little different than mine, but that's, that's pretty good. That pretty good story there. The other thing that was interesting about what you just mentioned, and I want you to say a little bit more about this was that once you started getting into the rhythm of professional life, you would. Be constantly presented with better opportunities and you would jump at them. That's actually a new school mentality. And I absolutely like that mentality versus my Gen X and older generations' mentality of basically you need to stay wherever you're at for as long as you can. Tell us a little bit about why that eagerness to jump or how that eagerness to jump was developed.
1: I think it was because I realized I'm not really good with forming in closed. Confinements. So I'm very ambitious. I'm very like aggressive and I like to push the boundaries as much as I can, right? Until I'm like, hey, this is as far as you can go. And I'm like, why is that again? Can you explain? Can I learn more? Even when I'm selling, I always ask questions like that. I'm not even like selling per se. I'm just asking, why is this? Can you and what would change? What would have to change for that to work? You know and I mean? So it's just the way I was, I grew up and it's the street smarts, it's the good sportsmanship, right? Like, It's just in my blood because like in Kenya, that's how most Kenyans are. That's why they have Kenyans are known to have this like acumen about dealing with people Like when you're buying something, you're bartering, right? That barter culture just made me naturally shouldn't question when people would just stand in line, right? So I think I quickly managed to break the societal barrier that existed in Chile, which was more conformist while I was more, why not? Why not? why not right and here i was getting people throwing giving me lifelines like, "Hey, i would actually like to hire you it would be so cool to work with you and i as a kid who was like young and taking on the world living this feeling at the top of his career right feeling so excited about all the opportunities coming to me in chile feeling like at home in chile feeling welcomed feeling like overwhelmed by the group of circles i had the group of circles i built how different all these circles of groups were and like all these things on my 21st birthday, I had 260 people at my birthday party, right? And that was like two years into living in the People People as old as like 37 to those young as like 19 or 20, right? So it's, it was crazy just being that young with that much exposure to age difference, to experience, to like people who are movers and shakers.
0: One of the things that stands out about what you just said, and I don't remember the person that had this quote, But the quote, and I'm paraphrasing, is along the lines of all progress relies on the unreasonable man. All progress relies on the unreasonable man on not accepting the world as it is. So I'm like butchering the quote, but you get progress relies on people that actually say, why does it have to be this way? Why do we have to do it this way? Why can't we do it a different way? And that really connects with me because on my end, I'm wired similarly. Where I ask a lot of questions just in general. A lot of people might find that annoying, but I'm always trying to figure out okay, is there a better way? What's the reasoning behind doing this? And what would be wrong if we took this other path? And would this other path be actually a better option than what we're doing? And that's why I've always fit in really well in startup and accelerating growth cultures in large organizations where it's stay in your lane. I struggle, man. It's tough. Like I'm not a, a tight operations. Person, I can't get into the minutia because I'm like a big picture person. We're here. We want to get over there. And for those that are listening, I'm pointing in two different directions. I don't need somebody to map it out that way. I just need to get over there. So let's figure that out. How can we get from here to there as fast as we can? Let's start doing it and doing it fast. So I really connected with what you said. I want to fast forward to you winning the startup competition and not just winning it when you actually got a chance to execute it. What were the big lessons that you learned from going through that experience?
1: Crazy is good. That's like the most, maybe that's the first thing I would say, because the crazier your thought could be, the more likely it comes from a place of passion and passion is everything right so my the first company i founded was an education based startup that was a tablet-based learning system and that as crazy as it sounded it was right when the you said you have a background from india when the akash tablet came out which was like a 30 dollars low-cost tablet this was about 12 years ago right like i was thinking that was going to be a game changer for schools and for democratizing education so I jumped at the opportunity to create this platform that worked on tablets and didn't require internet. That was the goal. That was the mission and started off way ahead of time, right? Like tablets were just coming out. The iPad just came out, like the Samsung started coming, the first tablets. And then the Kosh came out and I was like, that's exactly what we need. That's exactly what education needs, especially because I grew up in a really high-end school in Saudi Arabia. My friends had everything and my Saudi friends like threw away the iPads I didn't care about. Well, when I went to Kenya every year, I got sick. The kids studying on the street, like to just pass their grades or to get their grades done. So like it really impregnated something in my head that never let go of my vivid vision. And when I saw that, I just quickly clicked. What if we just did this? Like I could stand behind that mission, and I quickly found people to join me in that journey. So I think the craziness of a whim and then listening to your gut mixed with passion is exactly like the recipes you need to get something off the ground. And that's what happened when startup chili, like accepted us as one of the company's cohort year, and I was so devoted like immediately. Like that same moment I knew I'm quitting, if not in a week, like tomorrow and I'm doing this full time now.
0: That sounds like a great concept. What happened once you started on the execution side? It was my
1: first startup like experience with tech. I never like really dealt with tech, so I made a lot of mistakes. But I would say we had some decent market penetration. We ended up partnering with like big tablet manufacturers like Samsung, Huawei, Brightstar. And they would actually get all our leads for us because we were so cutting edge at the time where our software worked obviously for Android tablets because we were going for a digital divide mix. And it it took off really quickly thanks to those partnerships. But I quickly realized that it's a very tough industry, like education, selling to schools or te- tertiary education or technical education or universities. It's such a long sales cycle. It's probably one of the hardest markets to break into And back then, like startups were like, were seen as, no, we don't deal with companies this young. There's such an anti-startup culture, especially in America, right? In the US, I would say probably similar, but maybe in California and specific areas, it wasn't like that. But this is 2011, 12, 13, right? 14, like startups weren't as, weren't as big a thing as they are now. So it, it ended up like crushing us because of how, like how much the juggernauts had a, like a foothold on these markets how much there was some corruption existing, like it was just a lot of different things. We still ended up doing fairly okay, but we never sold the company. We just ended up calling it quits because it was just too much work and we made so many mistakes. we were so in deep. It just it was very hard to quit. But we just said, you know what, let's just regroup and find a different thing to do. When
0: I think about it as as you're telling the story, it's a great product, but the niche you're selling into has a lot of front-loaded headwinds that you got to deal with because I've sold into education before and it's not my primary industry that I'd want to sell to because there's uh-huh. so much bureaucracy that you have to go through. Then yeah. there's the budget constraints that you have to go through. There's constant push to discount, even when you're uh-huh. selling on, 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 razor thin margins to meet the market so i totally get your experience selling into education at any level just
1: to throw some fun metrics though we had a school in bolivia that had a thousand students all using tablets on a two megabyte bandwidth internet connection oh wow yeah so we we did really well with the low bandwidth environments so that, that was really our so we had a huge social impact measurements so that was my north star but it just didn't it didn't pan out as, as fast or as well as I wanted it to. And it was becoming very expensive.
0: It's really interesting to me that more word didn't get out, because when I think about the proportion of the world that grows up with educational infrastructure in, the, in place, very small. And yeah. then you look at the population that doesn't have the infrastructure and you're providing knowledge and learning and education as the great equalizer. Uh, And I think from your background and my background, like my parents beat it into my head that you better. The reason why we're leaving India to go to the U.S. is so you have a better life. Uh, And education is that pathway. So I'm intrigued that it didn't get bigger reach and really didn't blow up. But I get the circumstances behind it. You went through that entire cycle. And one of the things that we talked about in the beginning of the show is when you look at being a startup founder, at what point did you figure out what the most important lesson or focus needs to be a successful founder where did that come into play in terms of that learning cuz it it looks like you it sounds like you took a lot of lumps in that first effort
1: that's a really good point to bring up i would say with my with the first company like i was extremely focused on results and transactions and traction and growth which are important things to focus on don't get me wrong But the core recipe for success right now, in my opinion, is all about relationships. It's all about stakeholders. It's all about listening. It's all about falling in love obsessively with the problem you're solving and only focusing on being the best of that problem. Be the expert at the table of what that problem is by evidence. And evidence doesn't mean it's like a book you're reading. It means that you've talked to as many people who are your stakeholders and beneficiaries and understand, live, breathe, and have a visual memory of what the problem they have is. And that's where I feel I've invested so selflessly with Quema and with my personality in general too, like with other things too. So that's that allows me to be so empathetic, but also put my feet in people's shoes very in a very like drastic manner.
0: So that is something phenomenal. And you saw me grinning as you were saying it because <laughs> I've had a lot of startup founders on the show and they ostensibly say very similar things. I started out focusing on the product and trying to make the best product possible. It wasn't until I made the switch into being obsessed about the problem that I really accelerated my learning as a founder and also the product's acceleration into the marketplace. So that was really important. But the reason why I was grinning is I've been a sales guy forever. And I've run teams. And this is a conversation that I've been having for a decade. Stop talking about who you are, what you do, your company, your features and benefits. Nobody cares about any of that stuff. doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. You don't matter. You need to be obsessed about the problem that you solve for the customer. So you need to understand the customer problem first, if you want any hope of selling anything. Unless you're in the market for tacos, because everybody wants tacos, uh, do not talk about product. Do not talk about yourself. Talk about the problem. Start asking about the problem and keep digging until you actually like map that out. So that's why I was I was grinning when you were talking about that. So you referenced this earlier in the in in the show, and there was a critical event that happened that started you on the road for on the road to build Quema. And that was the kidnapping. What were the circumstances behind that? And then how that started the seed of the idea?
1: Yeah, I was living in Chile at the moment at that when that happened. And this person was in Bolivia. And it was just so viral that Facebook, Twitter was all flooded with the sharing of this news. This girl getting kidnapped. And it it just made sense. But it was a venture that I was we weren't going to do without funding. So we were like, okay, this is a great idea. We have to create a hardware product. Wow. Like we barely did miracles with the software product. How are we going to create a hardware product? Coming up with the, the design, the idea of what kind of jewelry, like what would people wear, all this kind of stuff, just to create a, a very basic concept. and started applying for like different accelerators. And that's when we got funding from a program in Alaska. And it just so happened to be that Alaska had one of the most dangerous stats for women then. So because of darkness, like the alcohol abuse, like it just had a huge reason for domestic violence and just sexual violence in general. So we were thinking Alaska would be a good place for us to do more market research, talk to more women and see how we can launch this product that is a jewelry piece specifically for gender-based violence, right? That could notify like a safety community of people close to you. And we were targeting schools, like universities, right? Like college campuses where, we could build a safety community of, I don't know, like hundred people who could help each other. So when you press a button, you get like a proximity-based alert that says, hey, this person's in danger and is really close to you. Can you just try and help? So that's kind of the stuff that we're trying to build. It was crazy because we got so much like scary feedback about the vigilante issue and all these different uses, like potential errors or issues, but we normally got a lot of support.
0: It's interesting that you describe the vigilante objection. That seems like a really edge case objection when you think about the greater good that would be done by having a wearable that attracts or alerts anybody in a security capacity of you being in danger that seems like an odd
1: Just alerting anybody in general it wasn't just a security capacity it's alerting anybody who wanted to be like a part of the safety community so it could be like you know what i mean and alaska is big on guns right so it was somebody was telling me like hey i'm like one one person one one i think college student was like hey if somebody's like attacking my sister like I have a gun. I'm going in there and messing somebody up, right? So, okay, we got to worry about that
0: now. I wasn't thinking in terms of who the audience is. I'm thinking it's you have a wearable, it alerts the authorities and whoever the authorities are, they come. It's actually within your your close-knit community. You hinted at this when the product concept came to mind. It's like, hey, we had our own challenges when it came to software. And now we're thinking about doing a hardware product. What are some of the challenges that you had to contend with when you were designing and launching? A hardware product that you didn't consider when you were doing software as
1: it takes so much longer like it takes way much longer to launch a hardware product than it would ever take to launch a software product you can't really get real validation until you have an actual looks like feels like product prototype and even then you can't deem it success until users actually wear and use your product and that's probably the hardest thing to achieve. Luckily, like we launched in Mexico City about two years after, about two years after funding, after f- uh, founding the company. And I had the, like, the luxury of Mexico is a very cash heavy economy. Like people don't use cards. Nobody has credit cards. So nobody buys online. Like e-commerce is like almost inexistent in Mexico back then, at least now it's better. Anyhow, we would do crazy with Facebook ads and have thousand engagement points. Like it was really viral just because of the endangered insecurity that women face in Mexico. And we had people coming to our offices in Mexico City just to see the product and end up leaving with three or four bracelets. And we were like, what? So it was such a good experience for me to be able to talk. Like, why are you so interested? What, Where would you use it? And then we started learning a lot about the user. And I was the one that was talking to them. And I asked them, why do you want to buy it? Like, instead of being like, okay, here's the product. Thank you so much. I was like, okay, I'm happy to tell you that. But what was, what's the reason you're interested in buying it? And Stuff like that. Which really helped our growth, but before, until that second year, like we didn't really, we couldn't really validate much. We did some pre-orders, but pre-orders were too risky for us because there was other companies trying to do like small wearables and all these different things that colossally failed, right? They raised, maybe they did a $200,000 Kickstarter campaign and then went like They could not come with a product. They got sued through the wazoo. So we were like, yeah, we don't want to do that. I would rather like maybe do a small test if we can sell $10,000 worth or $15,000 worth and then just focus on creating the product. I think that's a better strategy. That's what we did, right? So it allowed us to validate our product early, but at the same time, it wasn't real validation.
0: There's another thing that's pretty interesting about what you just described is that you're asking, you're doing your customer research at the point of sale. And the reason why I latched onto to this is that in sales, there's always this pushback between sales and marketing, and I don't know why right. it exists. Sales is always talking about marketing sends us crap leads, and then marketing's always talking about sales can't really close in it. Oh. And I, I've never understood that relationship, especially when considering the amount of sales revenue organizations that build these personas about what somebody is going to be interested in doing and why they buy without ever talking to the customer. Like Whenever I'm thinking about, hey, I want to launch a new product, I'm going to do at least 20 interviews to figure out, hey, here's the product concept. Is this something that you would be interested in? Okay, it would be interesting. Okay, why would you be interested in it? You did that exercise on the fly, which I think is just brilliant to date on the fly and do your R&D and do your buyer journey all at once and to figure out, okay, now I know this is the profile of somebody who might buy this product in volume. So let me target people that fit this criteria. And then I have a niche that I've built out. That stood out to me because this is the conversations that I have all the time as a sales guy who pretends to know marketing on LinkedIn. (laughs) You got to talk to your customers to find out why they buy from you. And what process they went through for you to be able to scale your product. The other part that was interesting about you, what you described was you targeted education, you targeted some mar- markets, and you specifically mentioned Alaska. And once you explained it, I understood, okay, why does that problem exist? But I'm operating under this, this mindset that this is a great product where people are getting kidnapped left and right, and that's third world country somewhere. Pick one. It happens all the time. But yeah. that's not really where. Quema and you are primarily playing. There are pockets of that, those types of places that you're involved in. But you cited education as a sector that that you're potentially launching into in pre-show, you mentioned healthcare and frontline workers. Tell us a little bit about how you landed in those segments.
1: Yeah, I think this goes down to where like business acumen meets passion and It was interesting, like balancing all of that out, right? Because there's so many problems we could solve with our product, right? And what I was measuring now was the grade of impact our product had within which scenarios. So going back to the kidnapping or violence in Mexico. Yes, somebody would press the button in in the case of an issue, but who would actually help them? That was like a question we were not getting answers for. People didn't want to, like, we're like, yeah, we'll notify the police. And people in Mexico are like, can I pay more and not notify the police? <laughs> right. So we're like, okay, so maybe that's not good. So we have to figure out a better way. Security services though were too premium, like private security was too premium for the general public. So we quickly realized that hmm, maybe this would be a harder problem to solve than we thought. Not building a community takes time. And then even then, Mexico City has 35 million people. Like, how in the heck would we be effective? So it made us question, go back to drawing board. and worry about the effectiveness of our product because it's not just about selling and then calling it a night, right? It's about selling just where the work begins. So in that journey, we got some funding from a group in Pennsylvania and they expected us to be there for a couple of meetings. And in that process, we got some press. When we got that press, the county reached out to us and said, hey, we saw you guys in the news. We're actually curious could we buy like a couple hundred of these slits for our social workers? And I was like, yeah, sure. Do you want to meet tomorrow or next week for a demo? And they summoned us like on the day. They're like, what if you guys come in 30 minutes and give us a demo? Because we have budget. We want to close by tomorrow. I was like, what? Okay. Boom. Flew there, Give a demo. They liked it. Like, all right, we want to involve emergency management to see if they would respond to the alerts. So we had another meeting with emergency management and they were grilling me, made me do a demo. Like the chief of police made me do a demo. They're like, okay, we don't endorse any products, but if Ali says what Ali said, it does, it actually does. So if you, the county wants to buy it, we will support you with the responses for your social workers. So that was a big aha moment. We got a PO in a month from that moment. So that's when I started thinking, maybe this employee safety market might be good because there's actually a response protocol that exists and we could tie our product to it and that becomes an effective product. Then came like the rabbit hole of like, all right, what are the most industry dangerous industries currently, obviously we're always thinking of the US because that's probably where the biggest security detail exists. Like when it comes to taking care of employees, how do we improve that? And then it just so happened timing was right because violence just spiked all over the country. Right. And I had, I probably have a thousand or more conversations of how to security, HR, safety, and I even segmented industries to the point where Safety and security are two completely different industries. Most people don't even know that. So I started, that's how much I fell in love with this problem. And I questioned, okay, so you're an EHS director, which is environment health and safety. What are your biggest challenges? Oh, slip and falls. Oh, heart attacks. Oh, okay. And I was like, all right, that's interesting. So we have this product, can you do this? Would it be interesting? And they're like, yeah, it's interesting. But most people won't be, like, won't be conscious enough to press the button when something happens. So we were like, huh, okay. So we were getting pushed back. We had a pilot. It didn't work out because we realized that it's hard to know when you're about to have a stroke, when you're about to faint. So like the fact of you pressing it might be possible, but it's still very unlikely. When we came to meet security now, when I'm saying corporate security, they were eating out of our hands. They're like, wow, this is exactly what we need because we are just focused on physical violence. So our product was so well suited for physical violence that... Every corporate security leader that I have in an interview, similar to what we're doing right now, hey, okay, I want to learn from you. You're an ex-FBI agent, you're an ex cia agent, you're an ex-secret service agent. Like, I am new in the security world. I just want to learn from your experience. And they just went on and on about their history, their culture, their experience, what they did with the FBI, what they're doing now with the with their companies that they work for. And I was like, the reason I'm interested is because of this. And were just like that's what you do. Like, I, you, I'm you, i so intrigued. I want to know more about your product because I might want to buy some. I was like, hey, relax, man. Just want to talk about your experience first. Then we'll talk about my product, right?
0: Ali, I don't mean to cut you off. I think I'm going to have you come in and talk to my sales team. because <laughs> see, Seriously. Like, I, I have this conversation all the time. Ask a question. Let the customer talk. Let them tell you all the stuff that's important. Latch on to something that catches your attention. Ask a question about that and why it's important. And let them sit in that experience. Like, you're... Yeah. I'm going to have you come in as a sales trainer.
1: Happy to do it, man. I love motivating folks, man. And anyhow, so what I was hearing was so like sad, but because I was like, wow, we can actually solve, save lives. Like, of course, I want to do that, right? Yeah. Like, why would you want to do that? So that's how the process went around. And that's how we found out about hospitals being the most dangerous workplace in the US right now. 80% of all workplace violence happens in hospitals. Who are the ones that are facing the risk? The people who are under overlooked, right? Like nurses, trainers, right? Like everybody who works, not the doctors per se, but mainly the nurses and the frontline workers that don't get to see that. So it made us feel full looped because I think there's a stat like 70% of all nurses are women. So it it still made us stay true to our core vision of preventing gender-based violence the difference was like how we were doing it. And then hospitals have pretty elaborate security teams. Like security is pretty much all over the hospital. They just didn't know when to help. So most of the times they're just like going to report or like to check in after the fact instead of preventing or de-escalating. So we found this really huge sweet spot. And that's when the aha moment for the badge came into play, right? Like we were showing the bracelets to several security leaders and they're like, Hey, people are flaky. If I have to give 5,000 employees this new bracelet and they have to remember to wear it every day. It's not gonna be successful, I'm sorry to tell you. We tried to do this with so many different things, it just didn't work. And I was like, that's a very fair objection, thank you for your time. And when I was walking out, I saw, them, I saw this on their belts. And I was like, what do you guys wear today? And then I saw the reel and I was like, what if you made the reel smart? Would you be interested? And they're like, hey, if you can do that, we're pretty interested. So luckily one of our big investments when we're prototyping our hardware product was a Formlabs 2 printer, which was like pretty expensive. But it can prototype very small plastic, 3D very small plastic to the 0.03 micron. So that allowed us to quickly make a sample in a week and a half and shared it. And they're like, okay, cool. When can you have this ready? Yeah. So that was a big aha moment. And I was like, all right, we have to apply for a patent because this is a very powerful realization. Like human behavior, changing it is so hard. So the fact that we can seamlessly add a layer of safety to tens of thousands of employees overnight, almost. And that's when we found out state laws and hospital laws require nurses to always wear a badge on them. And more importantly, they always have a badge with the logo of their healthcare system on it. So it just became stupid, like logical. And that's our big takeaway.
0: There's a lot of interesting stuff about what you just described, but your realization about the badge as the vehicle, instead of trying to change human behavior, go with human behavior there's somebody i follow on a regular basis josh braun and he always oh, talks about it, yeah so you you know where i'm going with this it's yeah. don't fight the resistance join the resistance it, the zone of resistance it, yeah, yeah. You're, you're talking about hey you're getting resistance from the product design and then you notice something and you ask a question about it and then because you asked a question and you were curious that opened the door for some real innovation. So it's fantastic stuff. So again, I'm going to have you talk to my sales team. So that's really great stuff. And I think I think it's a great story. But I think one of the things that underpins that entire description that, that you're talking about, that entire experience, other than your natural curiosity about how you engage, but you're engaging at a level where you're interested in building a relationship with that person it almost seems like more than you're interested in selling them something. So where did that come from and how has that served you as a multiple startup founder? So I would say
1: it. the fact that you focus on the relationship gives you quality consistently. Quality is what brings results, right? Like you, you don't want to sell to the shiny object person. You want to work and sell and partner with the person who genuinely understands what you're doing and generally values what you're doing for what it is and not for it being the next shiny object, right? So the fact that I build relationships, even with people who are never going to be my customer was so important because it made me understand what not to do, what I should double down on, what I should explore more. And that's exactly what my life philosophy is, right? I invest in people all the time, like just learning, just curiosity and not expecting anything in return just because. That's that's what humans should do more of. And there's always some kind of bucket you're filling, right? So maybe it might not be a professional bucket, but it might be a personal bucket or it might be like a professional budget, a bucket that's personal, right? It doesn't have to be climate related. It might be in the future that I save that person's life. How much would that feel? How would I feel knowing that I saved somebody's life because I talked to them about a problem they had? So all those different things by asking the right questions matter. And it's crazy the kind of stuff that you would face when you, Talk to somebody who you might think is larger than life and is actually like lonely. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's it's been really like fruitful to be able to put humans first and focus around that line to the point where I'm arguing with some like executives or leaders about the safety of nurses. I'm like, hey, I'm sorry. Like your nurses are not safe. I'm sorry. What you're doing is not working. I, by my own means, went on LinkedIn, found a couple of your nurses. I talked to them privately, anonymously. And I asked them how they felt. They were not happy with what's happening right now. So I'm going to take the bullet, whether you buy our product or work with us, to let you know that your nurses are not don't have peace of mind, are not happy with what they're with what you guys are giving them right now. I'm giving you the opportunity to be a mediator and be an innovator into adding a layer of safety for your frontline that actually works, that's seamless, and that they actually will feel like they, they're cared about. So I am that person. I have those conversations. And I don't mind if you don't do buy our product. I really don't. I feel like it's worth it enough for me to fight for the frontline workers who got us through the pandemic, right? Without these nurses and these frontline workers, where would we be? I'm so passionate about it that I don't care about the sale. (laughs) You know what I mean? I'm happy to walk away from the sale as long as they understand that what you're doing is not working. And we're on a wave right now. Like nurses are coming out publicly on TV saying how much their system does not give a damn about them. So I'm a forefront fighter for their convers for that conversation because somebody has to say it. I'm happy to be that person.
0: That what you've heard from nurses is consistent from, with what you hear from many frontline employees in general. Rank and file employees of any stripe, from pre pandemic and that accelerated through the pandemic, they often feel that the employers don't really care about their welfare or their benefit or well-being, which has led to vast majorities of them leaving the workforce. So I think you're hitting on something there. But I think the one thing that stood out about all of that relationship focus that you mentioned, it ties in with something that I I talk about with my teams. I always talk about, hey, it's critical for you to build relationships first, because if you're interested in making an impact, in the world around you, your relationships create the ripples that drive that impact. Because if you have a ripple over a long enough timeline, that turns into a wave. And it's something that I talk about all the time is that you need to be the force that creates those ripples and how you impact other people allows for that change and for that impact to, to become real. You don't have to drive it by yourself. You can drive it through other people by the relationships that you build. So I connected really well with your description of it because I think we must be like twins or something. So Ali, I think if I were to reframe this show as a sales show, I don't think many people would notice the difference because there's a lot of fundamental sales concepts that you're talking in terms of startup effectiveness that translate well into the sales world as well. So it's a really fun conversation that we're having. So we have the origin story of Quemma, and how you came up with the product and all of that sort of stuff what's next for you as the founder
1: honestly saving lives like we we already had some success cases like mitigating and de-escalating violent situations that could have turned really badly shipping a lot of these bu- these boxes out like they're they come in very small boxes and like a similar to a donut box and in a bigger donut box with about 112 of these boxes in it so like the whole experience we designed it's about that duty of care that's exactly what employees should feel when a healthcare system gives them this right come to this box they get it they just remove their name tag and put it on and now they have a seamless layer of safety across anywhere and security teams are very powerful right so like we're talking 30 90 second response so when they press that button they know that somebody's coming 30 to 90 seconds right so it's a hard it's a hard thing to do consistently but the industry is demanding it by the number of incidents that happen per month. We're talking 50 in the lower end to a thousand in the higher end, right? It's insane how healthcare systems are getting battered right now, really getting battered. And the frontline workers are the ones that are absorbing all that hit. So for us, it's all about making an impact. We have a lot of people vouching for us. We are involved in a lot of associations like the IHS, which is the National Association of Hospital Security and Safety, or Healthcare Security and Safety. And... We're big volunteers and supporters of that organization because unlike other departments, security collaborates. So two competing medical or scientists or pharmaceutical companies would never share secrets, right? But security does, right? So two competing hospital systems will share their security insights to each other because they're united front, right? So word really explodes and we're a young company and making a lot of noise in this industry. Like people love our product we do the hard work. We make a sample, we give it to the security leaders of hospitals and tell them, hey, you know what? Share it with your directors of nursing. Share it with your nurses. Tell me what they think, and then let's talk next week. They come back. It's almost unanimous. Hey, they don't want any other product. They wanted this yesterday. What do we need to do? So it's super key understanding the benefit, right? And that's where we doubled down on it. And now it's just exploring where else do we have to make this benefit Reach. And that's why I'm currently in South Korea. I'm in Seoul. And in South Korea, hospitals are ginormous. We're talking 3,000 to 5,000 bed hospitals. Oh, wow. Almost 20,000 employees in one airport sized hospital. So our product obviously has huge potential here, especially because South Korea is like very Bluetooth and infrastructure ready. Like this is the future world, man. Like I'm mind blown being here for about two weeks now. And I'm just losing my mind on how. Advanced, Everything is here. Things work like clockwork. Everything is so techy. Like it's really impressive. For Seoul being like a 15 million people city, it's at scale seeing it, it's really impressive. So hospitals are, I would say, a bit readier for our product than the U.S. is, but the U.S. needs our product way more than South Korea does, right? So it's like super interesting to get both sides of the coin and then balancing this business case, right? So the next couple of years of our business would be definitely scaling to... A lot of healthcare systems, both in the U.S. and overseas, and most important, seeing nurses be more valued, hopefully less nurses quit, not quitting the, the profession, because right now there's a huge crisis that's coming our way. Nurses are not renewing their licenses. So we see really long-term effects in the healthcare system in the U.S. just because of our product. Now, it's not just because of our product, because we're talking tying it into everything else but we're leveraging the existing infrastructure that's already been invested, like de-escalation training, like security officers, like cameras, like training in general, right? Like all these different things that have already been invested, but are not being leveraged to its optimal use. So with our product, we're also allowing that optimal usage to come to light. And that's why we're looking at industry partners that we'll be announcing in the next couple of months. So it's a very exciting time. It's also a very heartbreaking time, to be honest. Like the amount of news that are on my LinkedIn feed about people getting shot, stabbed, killed, beat up in hospitals it's unacceptable
0: that's phenomenal stuff and i think there's probably a broader opportunity in elementary and secondary and higher ed as well because those tend to be soft targets when it comes to violence as well so i think there's a product market fit there that that might solve some problems too. before we sign off what are the two or three big takeaways that you want the listeners and viewers to walk away with biggest
1: takeaway is i invite everyone to fall in love with a problem that adds value to our society we need help like a lot of us need help in different ways and if you could be somebody that solves a problem that is hopefully morally sound you will have so many double triple bottom lines to feed off like it won't just be the result the byproduct will be money everything else will be even more important that's the biggest takeaway i'd probably give Secondly, invest more in the world, invest more in cultures. Get to know your. if you haven't left your state, go to a different state. If you haven't left your country, go to a different country. Do a bit of that and try and hang out with locals, try and feel that invitation when you go to a different culture, right? That is one of the richest things you could have and makes, makes the world a lot smaller. And it really fulfills you because you feel like a human, a global human, right? Not just a human in one part of the world.
0: Last thing, where can people find you?
1: Yeah, so people can find me at my email. It's aliquema.co.com. Or you can check out our website, which is kwema.co. So yeah, I'm happy to keep connected. I'm on LinkedIn.
0: If you can't find them on LinkedIn, find me, and then I'll connect you. And and don't be surprised, Ali, if I if I have some other startup founders that uh, that ping you with questions about, hey, how do I get a product to market, and what should I be thinking about? Awesome conversation. I appreciate you spending the time with us and telling us your story. I think it's uh, it's packed with. A lot of startup lessons, a lot of sales lessons, a lot of relationship lessons. I'm going to hit you up at sales training and have you come in. It. So really solid stuff. I appreciate you spending some time with us. For those of you who have been listening and following us on your favorite po- podcast platforms, go ahead and tell your friends. You can find us on all your favorite podcast platforms. We're on YouTube. LinkedIn is our primary channel. We're also on TikTok and on Facebook. We're not on Instagram because that's for food pics and you can find us everywhere under the Cascading Leadership handle. (laughs) So thanks again for joining us, Ali. And thanks for listening. Tune in next time for another great episode of Cascading Leadership. Thank you for listening to this episode of Cascading Leadership. We hope you enjoyed the story as much as we did. Make sure you subscribe to our show on your favorite podcast player. Follow us on YouTube, TikTok, LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook